The issue of replication is uh, near and dear to my heart. Uh, as uh, an economist at the Australian National University, I always placed a priority on putting data onto my website uh, because, uh, as, uh, as good social scientists say, uh, if at first you succeed, try and try again. Uh, it is uh, important that we keep on replicating our studies uh, and the importance of that has been illustrated, as you well know, uh, by the work of Brian Nozick in psychology, showing that only about a third of results replicated, uh, which then led to uh, studies in genetics, which found only a successful replication rate of one in nine, uh, in oncology, which also found a successful replication rate of one in nine, uh, in macroeconomics, which found a replication rate of one in two, but given the lack of data sharing in that discipline, that may be a, a biased sample, uh, and has led to, uh, to one commentator saying that if the replication crisis has taught us anything, it's that most published findings are probably false. I'm uh, as guilty of this as anyone. Uh, I wrote a book in 2014 called The Economics of Just About Everything, uh, which relied on Shena Angar's study of the paradox of choice. Uh, her study showing that uh, when shoppers were given a wide array of jams, uh, they were less likely to purchase than when they were given only a small subset of jams. Unfortunately, what I hadn't done was to read the follow-up meta-analysis, which drew together all of the studies on this topic and concluded that, in fact, there was no such paradox of choice uh, when you averaged across the studies. I am also somebody who has uh, uh, allowed uh, replication and the scaling up of data uh, to change my own behaviours. Uh, in the 1990s, I took uh, daily fish oil uh, tablets uh, and continued to do, do so uh, based on a 2002 study that showed that mashed up sardines and anchovies uh, were good for your heart. Turned out a decade later, when researchers published a meta-analysis based on a number of larger scale studies of fish oil tablets, that indeed there was no protective effect of fish oil on health. Uh, so accordingly, I stopped taking fish oil tablets uh, and I urge you to do the same. Uh, in a, a book published last year, Random Misters, uh, How Radical Researchers Changed Our World, uh, I argued that randomised trials uh, can play an important role in a world in which we need more replication. Randomised trials have two chief advantages. Uh, one is their sheer simplicity. Uh, I have tried explaining my research using matching estimators to my aunt and comprehensively failed. But I promise you, when you run a randomised trial, uh, you can very easily explain it to any of your relatives over Christmas Day. Uh, that also holds for policymakers. Uh, if you're trying to explain why a study works, then having uh, the toss of a coin allocating people into treatment and control is the ultimate in simplicity. But that, also, that simplicity also provides greater surety that when we're replicating, that the follow-up study uses the same methodology as the initial study. So randomisation fosters replication. Randomised trials have a uh, long and distinguished history, starting first in medicine. In 1747, a 31-year-old James Lind uh, set, set about doing trials to test various cures for scurvy. Uh, he took 12 sailors, as he put it, as similar as I could have them, 
uh, and allocated them a number of the, the cures of the day. Uh, some were to, uh, to receive vinegar, an unlucky group were, were fed salt water, uh, others were fed guts, which is as bad as it sounds, uh, and a lucky pair uh, received citrus. Uh, those two were up and about, back to their duties. Within a week, uh, the remainder continued to languish. Unfortunately for James Lind, while he was very good at experimental design, he was not very good at writing up. First of all, it took him six years to write up his results. But secondly, his theories for why citrus worked were hocus-pocus. The scientific community saw that he had batty theories and therefore dismissed his very strong empirical results. Uh, that's important for Australia because, of course, the expedition in 1770 of Cook and in uh, 1788 of Philip uh, occurred before Lynn's findings had been fully accepted. It was just lucky that Cook and Philip, for their own <coughs> reasons, decided to regularly call in at ports, picking up fresh fruit and vegetables as they, as they went. And as a result, the casualty rate was much lower than in many other expeditions uh, and had it not been uh, for their understanding of the importance of fresh fruit and vegetables, uh, we might well be having this lecture in French or Portuguese today. <laughs> but by the end of the 1700s, uh, Lynn's findings had been picked up and understood, uh, including, most importantly, uh, by the British Navy, who then took on the French and the Spanish in the Battle of Trafalgar uh, with significantly smaller troops, uh, as a force of, of ships, but ships which were, whose sailors were not affected by scurvy. By this time, the British Navy was uh, consuming about 200,000 litres of citrus annually, uh, and its sailors uh, were ready to go. So if you want to know the success of the Battle of Trafalgar, it has little to do with military tactics, but a lot to do with good experimentation uh, and the implementation of those research findings. Uh, Randomised trials then flowed through medicine in Ambrose Paré's treatment of battlefield burns, uh, moving away from the previous practice of pouring boiling oil onto wounds uh, to a much nicer practice of uh, cooling liquids and bandaging them up. Uh, the uh, practice of bloodletting was subject to a randomised trial and shown to be ineffective uh, in the early 1800s, uh, just a moment too late for the medical profession, which by then had named one of its top journals, The Lancet, a name which, of course, <coughs> continues to today. Uh, we saw in the 1940s a large-scale uh, randomised trial of the treatment of streptomycin for tuberculosis uh, run by Austin Bradford Hill in Britain. Uh, Bradford Hill used a randomised trial to test uh, streptomycin simply because there wasn't enough of it, and he felt it would be unethical to administer it in an ad hoc manner when he could do so in a randomised manner. The same philosophy uh, led uh, American researchers in 1954 uh, to test polio on 600,000 American children. Uh, this was one of the largest randomised trials to be conducted uh, and showed conclusively uh, that children given the polio vaccine uh, were less, less susceptible to, receiving, to contracting polio uh, than those who received the placebo. Imagine now doing a, a trial of that scale, a randomised trial, uh, on school children, in which we're getting half of the school children uh, sugar water and the other half <coughs> the treatment we believe to be effective. 
But we did it, it mattered. And the next year, all American school children were receiving the polio vaccine. In the 1960s, treatments for diabetes and blood pressure, the contraceptive pill, uh, were subject to, random, to randomised trials. Uh, and today, uh, we have a situation in which you need to put drugs through randomised trials uh, in order to get clinical approval uh, and to get public, su public subsidies in pretty much every advanced country. How many drugs pass through it? Well, a frighteningly small number. If you take 10 drugs that come out of the laboratory looking promising, one will make it through stage one, two, three clinical trials and onto market. So the lab has a 90% failure rate in producing drugs that will make it to market. That doesn't mean that researchers are stupid. It means they're dealing with bafflingly hard problems. And I think the challenges for social scientists like me uh, is to acknowledge that in our own uh, areas, uh, whether we're trying to close indigenous gaps or reduce incarceration or bring about full employment, any particular idea that we th that theory provides to us has a relatively low chance of succeeding in practice. Uh, the more rigorous the evidence bar is, uh, the less likely that <coughs> theories are to work. And that shouldn't cause us to uh, throw away our sense of optimism, but it should inst indeed uh, instill a greater sense of scientific curiosity uh, and the importance of rigorous evaluation. Uh, we, uh, we've seen uh, in Melbourne uh, the uh, Journey to Social Inclusion trial, uh, a trial of intensive caseworker support for people who've been long-term homeless. It was carried out by the Sacred Heart Mission uh, with a sample of 40 in the treatment and 40 in the control. Now, if you'd like me, you might think that three years of intensive caseworker support would see all of those in the treatment group uh, happy, healthy, well-adjusted and fully employed. Uh, but in fact, at the end of the trial, uh, it found that those in the treatment group were more likely to be in homes and had slightly better mental health, uh, but were uh, no more likely to be employed. The employment rate uh, among the treatment group was one out of the 40. The employment rate in the control group was one out of 40. Uh, while there's many homelessness studies which have produced bigger effects than the journey to social inclusion study, I don't believe their results in the way I believe J2SI. Uh, because by rigorously assigning the groups to treatment and control, uh, you ensured that it was possible uh, to get a true causal effect. And as the researchers went back through it, they started to realise the difficulty of the challenge. Uh, these are people who had been sleeping rough on Melbourne streets for a decade. Uh, one of the participants uh, said his mum used to put Valium in his cereal. Uh, so these are people who'd been, in many cases, using drugs for years, and in that case, uh, finding stable volunteering positions was probably the best we could, we could have hoped for. If we get more replication of programs like Journey to Social Inclusion, we'll be on a better path to working out what works and what doesn't. Uh, in Canberra, we've done restorative justice trials, uh, which have uh, brought victim and offender together. And so the victim can tell the offender how the crimes affected their life, uh, and the offender has a chance to say sorry. Uh, when victims are asked afterwards, if you had a chance to seek revenge on the, on the perpetrator, would you do it? 
Only one in ten say yes. Compared to a control group who've gone through the traditional judicial process, where half of all victims say if they could take revenge, they would. So, given that many, much violence is a tit-for-tat cycle, there's great potential of the restorative justice trials uh, to improve uh, the, our ability to, uh, to reduce violence. Uh, this is also important because uh, the restorative justice experiments are now joining up across countries. So we have the results from British studies, American studies and Australian studies, which allow us to, to paint a broader picture as to what's going on. Uh, you get uh, replication, but you also get validation in certain, uh, certain cultural contexts. I struck this in writing Randomistas in talking to a kidney researcher who told me that he now doesn't engage in randomised trials based on a single country. All of the studies he's doing are in multiple countries. And he says that ensures two things. First of all, that the treatment uh, isn't, working, isn't specific to people of a particular ethnicity, uh, given the risk of gene-drug interactions that uh, might be unexpected. And secondly, each national trial uh, serves as a kind of within-study replication. So he says he's much more confident when a study is being done on half a dozen sites, and they're the only kinds of, kinds of studies he now engages in. Uh, in the United States, we've got uh, uh, randomised trials now being taken place uh, on uh, what's called the Promise Academy in Harlem. Uh, in Harlem, uh, the life expectancy of young men uh, in the 1980s was lower than in Bangladesh. Uh, and the performance of the schools was decided to be absolutely critical to turn around opportunities in Harlem. Uh, the Promise Academy, through longer school days, uh, better trained teachers uh, and no excuses culture, was able to produce gains of two to four years of achievement. Put another way, it was effectively closing the black-white test score gap uh, in, that, uh, in that area. Uh, one researcher said that the achievements of the Promise Academy were akin to curing cancer for those kids. But again, we want to see to what extent that can be replicated. Is it dependent on the particular leadership model of the Promise Academy, or are there ways you can get that kind of system to work elsewhere? Uh, we've just had the Nobel Prize for Economics uh, handed down, and handed down to uh, three randomisters, uh, Michael Kremer, Abhijit Banerjee, and Esther DeFlo. Uh, they, to me, embody so much of what we've learned through randomisation uh, and the importance of, of replication. Uh, their studies on, uh, uh, with Kenyan farmers looked at the impact of providing fertilisers for uh, different, uh, different stages of the, cycle, of the uh, crop cycle. Uh, they found when they provided fertiliser subsidies uh, late in the season, when farmers were just about to plant, uh, that the take-up was low and profits <coughs> commensurately lower. But when farmers were <coughs> offered the opportunity to pre-purchase fertiliser just after their, their, they'd, uh, they'd harvested, uh, when they had money in their pockets, they took up the opportunity, uh, bought the fertiliser uh, and raised their earnings the next year. Kenyan farmers, like the rest of us, tend to be a little bit too <coughs> present focused and a clever design, a totally designed program uh, could benefit their outcomes. Uh, they also uh, experimented uh, with drink driving enforcement in the Indian state of Rajasthan, uh, looking at whether it was more effective to place drink drive, uh, to have police stops 
in the most dangerous intersections with the most uh, cars coming through or to move them randomly around the city. And it turned out when you placed them in one spot, drivers very effectively just drove themselves around the, uh, the, the, the stops. When you <coughs> move the driver stops, uh, drunk drivers were more likely to be caught, uh, accidents were averted and lives were saved. One of the randomisters, Esther Deflo, uh, sums up to me uh, the philosophy that a good researcher should have. She says, if I can predict what you're going to say on every issue, then it's likely you're going to be wrong on stuff. You've lost the ability to be surprised by the data. And we shouldn't trust somebody who can't be surprised by the data. She urges people who want to solve social problems not to come with a single idea, but with a menu of options to experiment with. Whether they're non-profit funders or governments, she urges them to think about a series of things that they might like to try. And she says that her uh, one opinion is that things should be evaluated. Beyond that, she doesn't have strong opinions and therefore doesn't find herself placed in a position of being disappointed by findings. I think that's absolutely critical for researchers. If you're doing a study where you are so invested that you're not willing to publish uh, a result that goes against your prize, then you're in the advocacy game, not the science game. Uh, it is critical to be willing to be surprised by your findings, to delve in a little deeper and to work out what's going on. Uh, the world is uh, vastly, vastly more complicated than simple theories allow, uh, and putting those theories to the test uh, is critical. Uh, Randomised trials have uh, certainly changed the way in which I, uh, I live my life. Uh, I, uh, I used to take a multivitamin tablet until I read a, a meta-analysis of all of the research that had been done on vitamin supplements of A, C and E, uh, which found that the average effect uh, was a slight increase in mortality rates. <laughs> Not wanting to send myself to an early grave, I stopped taking those morning multivitamin tablets. Uh, I'm a runner, and so I uh, uh, was struck when I read a study of uh, marathon runners conducted after a number of Australian marathons where they randomly got people to wear uh, compression socks or not and then tested their performance on a treadmill a couple of weeks later. Uh, turns out wearing compression socks is good for recovery, so uh, I always wear compression socks after a race. Uh, and thanks to researchers at James Cook University, uh, I was finally able to answer the question, when removing a Band-Aid, is it better to do it fast or slow? Uh, they tested pain levels uh, on using both methods. Uh, it turned out the fast approach is uh, less painful than the slow approach. Um, so I always distract my, my three little boys before removing a Band-Aid uh, by going into a bit of a discussion about the James Cook University band <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so thank you for all you're doing to build a society which is more based on evidence and ideas. Uh, I, as a, as a researcher and as a policymaker, do occasionally find myself dispirited in the age of uh, Donald Trump and Boris Johnson, uh, the age of snappy soundbites and uh, hubris. But I think of randomised trials and replication as being what happens when modesty meets numeracy. Uh, when we recognise that theory is useful, but it's not everything. And where we recognise that 
each of us bring only a piece of the puzzle together. And then ultimately, we become wiser uh, if we share the understandings of others, if we use the best quality evaluation techniques, uh, and if we recognise uh, that all of us can continue learning every day. Thank you very much.